We often hear the, the thought, if you were charged with being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you in a court of law? If you were to tell someone your story, would that story even include Christ? Were you to tell the story of your life? Would it include anything about your faith in Jesus Christ? Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here together today to worship your name, to exalt Jesus Christ, to lift you up, and Father, help us not to be able to live without you. That we can't make it from one step to the next, from one day to the next, without you. And we pray for your help in accomplishing that. May our focus be on you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And just in case any of you are wondering, I just knocked my water bottle off with the lid off. I did not have an accident, trust me. Okay? Boy, that's embarrassing. That, That was an accident, yes. That was not intentional. <laughs> My son was home this weekend, and he just has a young pup. It's about three months old, German Shepherd, and great dog. Didn't mess or wet in the house at all, so did this all on my own. <laughs> Open God's words, if you would, to the book of Acts. do want to point out that we have answered prayers in our midst with us today. Ron Clark is here. It's good to see you, brother. Ron decided to fill his waders up with some water while he was in the river, and he figured out that's pretty doggone cold, huh, Ron? So we're going to have a a party one of these days and we're going to cut his chest waders off at the ankles so that he can't do that again. Ron would hate me if I did that, so no, I won't do that, Ron, but um, it's good to see you, brother. And um, Cam's not here today. Okay, okay. Um, Cam is also an answer to prayer. Um, he was in the hospital last week for a couple days. Um, four days, three, four days, something like that. Um, they shocked his heart. Well, he had pneumonia, and that's why he went in initially, but then his heart was having some issues, and so they shocked it, and it's settled out. He was, I guess he mowed his whole lawn on Monday this week, so he must be feeling better. So, yeah. Um, remember Tony here, he's got some needs, possibly getting on a transplant list. So it's good to see you here today. Tony, all those of you that have health issues that we're praying for, as I look around, there's just a whole bunch all over the place. So it's good to good to see you here. Robin's back, and uh, Dean, we haven't found anything else out here yet. Okay, all right. Penny's getting ready for surgery in a few weeks or a month or so, maybe September. Okay, all right pushed out a little bit there. Um, We're glad each one of you is here today, though. Glad that you're with us, and 
here to worship the Lord and um, partake of a potluck dinner in, in memory of Jill Hutchinson. Jill passed away almost a month ago now, and um, to where she, Jill, Jill loved potlucks. If any of you knew Jill very well at all, you know that Jill loved potlucks. And so we figured this was a good way to honor her memory as a church. So Acts, the book of Acts. Last week, last couple of weeks, we've been in chapter 7. Stephen is preaching to the council, which includes the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the, all the other judges from the, the inner court gate and the outer court gate. There's 23 judges on each of those. And he had the opportunity to preach to them, and, and we, we told you to do your homework and read that before because I wasn't going to study and go line through line all 70 verses of, or excuse me, all 60 verses of Acts chapter 7. But the main point of his message, and if you read through it, it, it just looks like a history lesson of the Jewish nation. And all of us pastors and preachers get frustrated when you guys don't get what we're trying to preach. And sometimes that's our fault. Sometimes it's yours, you know. I, don't, I won't take all the credit. But the point and the purpose of that message and of that preaching in, in Acts chapter 7 was to tell the, the, the Sanhedrin, to tell the courts, to, to tell the people that had formed their their belief system into a religion and they worshipped their religion more than they worshipped Christ. Stephen's whole purpose and his whole message was to tell them that Jesus is not contained in a temple. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God. He talked about Abraham in Mesopotamia. He talked about Joseph in Egypt and Moses on the backside of the desert, Midian. Where they were, God met with them there. They weren't anywhere near Jerusalem, and yet God was there to meet with them. We've been, been talking about how Men, and we've specifically been mentioning Calvin and Luther and John Wesley and the Methodists, how these men were on fire for the Lord. They preached the word. And then when they died, their followers made a monument to them and not to the God that they preached. We are to remember Not to forget, so it's not bad to remember what Martin Luther did for the church, what John Calvin did for the church, what the Wesleyans did for the church. That's not a bad thing to remember, but our focus and our memory needs to be on what God has done for us. And the Jews needed to understand and realize that, and it's one thing that clouded their minds. They were so stuck, and we've talked about Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law and Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the temple. That's right. Christ was the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the temple. They still wanted to worship the law and the temple. They didn't get it. They didn't want to worship Christ. They wanted to worship their religion. Instead of worshiping the one that created the whole universe, 
The one that cares about each one of us so much that even though the universe is bigger than our minds can even fathom, He loves you. Each and every one of us, He loves individually. And He has a plan for each and every one of us individually. That's how much He loves us. And the Sanhedrin didn't get it. They still wanted to worship the law in the temple and not to be worshiping Christ. And so that's where where Stephen gets down in in chapter 7 towards the end. You you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. And we'll come back to that a little later in the message. He said, you need to focus on Christ. Not on the temple, not on the law. But in our worship, we are responsible to worship Christ. That's that's who our love should be for. That's who our our adoration should be of. That's what our praise should be lifted and exalted is to Jesus Christ, not to the law and not to a building. Even when Solomon built the beautiful temple in Jerusalem, he said in in, uh, 2 Chronicles, he says, "This, this, this, this can't contain God. This, this, this house that I built, although it's beautiful and it's in, in, in his honor and to worship him, this, this place can't contain him. The Sanhedrin didn't like that because if, if this was true, if Christ had actually raised from the dead, then the, then the religion that they had established and set up was worthless. They were smart enough at least to understand that. You got, we'll, give, we'll give them this much credit. Because they they understood that if Christ was who he said he was, the Son of God, then their religion was vain. It it wasn't worth anything. And they wanted to remain relevant. They wanted to stay the focus of the Jewish people's religion. They wanted to stay in power. They wanted to be important. And how many times have I said they? They. They didn't want to worship Jesus for who he was, for who he is as our Savior. So today we move into verse or chapter 8. And in the first four verses of this chapter are so disjointed. And, and so my notes are probably just as disjointed. So if you haven't been here and haven't been following Acts at all, you'll probably walk out of here disjointed. Hopefully not. Hopefully we can make some sense and, and put it in a little bit of order. But we are going to be hopping around. And, and initially I had the brainy idea that I would make it a whole lot further through Acts 8. And, and as I continued my study through the week, I said, well, maybe we'll make it through verse 8. And by yesterday I figured out we'll be lucky if we make it through verse 4. So anyhow, we're going to get started here. Acts chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Oh, I didn't bring you up to date on that part. At the very end of chapter 7, they stoned Stephen because he's calling them out for what they are. And none of us like that, do we? But this, this was who they were. This was their whole life. So when Stephen calls them out, they got mad. They killed him. Killed him on the spot. Verse eight, Chapter 8, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. 
And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. And Saul comes back into the picture. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. At first glance, that looks pretty straightforward, and there's not a lot there. But guess what? There's a lot there. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We'll bounce around. We're going to go to a couple other scriptures, but most of the time we're going to be bouncing around Acts back and forth. Acts 1.8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Up to this point, they hadn't been obeying all of that. They, they, they had been doing their job in Jerusalem and Judea, but they, they hadn't taken the gospel to Samaria. They certainly hadn't taken it to the uttermost parts of the earth, like the UP of Michigan. We say, you know, that's what we say, is we live in the UP. We can check that box off. We've taken it to the uttermost parts of the world, okay? <laughs> the gospel is here, okay? Um, but we're, we're starting out looking at Saul. He was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. He consented. He was pleased it was the Sanhedrin's goal to wipe it out. And, and when I say the, the Saul here, or the Sanhedrin, they're, they're synonymous. Saul was one of the Sanhedrin. He had been brought up and taught in the school of Gamaliel. So, so he believed like these guys did. And any, anybody that was in opposition or taught something other than this needed to be eradicated, needed to be wiped out, because they were preaching something that was against the law. Again, not acknowledging that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the law and that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the temple. He was in hearty agreement. It was, it was an achievement. It was a triumph. It was a goal accomplished to kill Stephen. And, and we, we mentioned in weeks past how, how John the Baptist was, was beheaded and, and they didn't complain or whatever. They just let it happen. Jesus, they screamed that he should be crucified. And by the time they got to Stephen, although the Jewish people did not have the right of capital punishment, they were so angry by what he said that they just hauled him off and stoned him. They didn't even take him to the Roman authorities and ask if they could. They were so angry at what he was saying. The, the term, let's see there. Uh, in verse 3, verse 1 is Saul was in hearty agreement. And, and, and it, I, I, usually that word hearty is a good thing. But you know, just for him to be in agreement is one thing. But to say that he was in hearty agreement, he, he was enthusiastic. He was excited about the stoning of Stephen. And then down to verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church. He didn't do it by himself. There was the other Sanhedrin and, and those that, that were in the Sadducees, Pharisees, that, that, that wanted this, this the way, as it's called later in Acts. They wanted this wiped out and destroyed because it was a threat to their religion. Saul began ravaging the church and entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. He only put them in prison so that they could stand trial so they could be executed. But that word ravaging is a really strong word. 
It is an all-consuming, let's see, there, there we go, that the Greek word, the direct translation of the Greek word for ravaging is brutal and sadistic cruelty. Not like a brother and sister having an argument or a fight. A little bit, little bit stronger than that. Beginning of verse 2, I told you you're going to be bouncing all over today, so hang with me here. Beginning of verse 2, it says that on that day the great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. It was like an explosion took place. It was like that, that spark of that forest fire. And the, the wind blows it and all of a sudden, it's everywhere. They, they became bloodthirsty. If you look over in chapter 12 of Acts there, the first four verses... Acts chapter 12. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Get this. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of the unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. They were bloodthirsty. One, one life isn't enough. And that was Stephen. Then we go to James. That's not enough. The king saw that it pleased, so they put Peter in prison. Because after the, after the feast... He'll give them over to the people so they can kill him too. Ferocity of a ferocity of a sudden storm, trying to destroy the church. The goal was extinguishing, to put out the light of the gospel, as as Stephen read in Psalm eighty three this morning. God, do not remain quiet. Do not remain silent. Do not be still, for your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have exalted themselves. They've made plans against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. The Sanhedrin, the the Sadducees, excuse me, wanted to wipe out the way. They wanted to wipe out people that believed in this Jesus Christ, that Christ was the fulfillment of everything that they held near and dear, but they didn't want to see it. They, they didn't want to see Christ for who he was. Enough with Saul. We'll move on to the church. Verse, end of verse 1 there. That, that the persecution rose against the church. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. And then down to verse 4, Therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. In the Old Testament, the Jews were scattered. Why? Because of their sin, their disobedience. When James begins his book, and his book was written about 10 to 15 years before Acts. <clears throat> Excuse me. And James said that as he was writing to the Jews that were dispersed, those that were scattered, why were they scattered? Because of judgment, God's judgment. He brought the Assyrians in and then the Babylonians to carry them away because they were disobedient children. 
It's interesting that here they're going to be scattered again, but for a totally different reason. They're going to be scattered so that they can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're scattered throughout the regions to to, to preach the word. The church had barely been planted. And we, we don't have exact dates of how long between each note we have. We know that it wasn't a day-by-day, blow-by-blow account of every single thing that happened. So that some, some believe the church may have been as young as a few months old here, and some believe it could have been as much as a year to two years old. Still a pretty young church. They were planted and they were persecuted. And, and why did the persecution come? The persecution came because of the word of God. If we look in Acts 7, 51, we started to read there through 53. You men are stiff-necked, and this is Stephen preaching to the Sanhedrin. You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and heart and ears, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. This is a case where it's not a good thing to be like your father, fathers. You who received, verse 53, you who received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep the law. When they heard this, they were cut to the quick, began gnashing their teeth at Stephen. They couldn't stand truth. The persecution of the word of God had had begun with the prophets and and long before this generation. They were famous for killing the prophets. But you know what? Thank goodness Satan's not the sharpest tool in the shed. We go back to Acts 5.28. Remember, when, when Peter and John were on their way into the temple, they healed the lame man. And the Sanhedrin didn't like it because the attention was being drawn to them away from the religious sect and what they thought people should have been worshiping. So they were put in prison overnight and then brought before him and basically told, get out and keep your mouth shut. Acts 5.28, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Amen and amen. They didn't listen to them. They spread the word of God. They didn't listen to man. They listened to God and what God would have them do. That was just on a small scale. Thank goodness Satan didn't learn his lesson there. Because now he's going to scatter the whole church. And there's there's numbers that, that scholars think by this time the church... May have been around 50,000. Not just Peter and John. You got a whole big group. A lot of people that when they scatter, they're going to take the message of the gospel with them. In economics, there's, there's a term that 
is used to, to describe some things that happen that you didn't plan on. It's called unintended consequences. Of course, we have some of those in our families when you discipline your children, and sometimes there's unintended consequences. But you think, if we do this, then this will happen. You do this, and this happens, but then this happens too. The unintended, they were trying to wipe out the church. And all they did was flame the fire, stoke the fire, and blow it out all over the region like Jesus told them to do in the beginning. God, God used Satan and the evil of the Sanhedrin to accomplish his will among his people. Go back to Proverbs 21.1. Uh, 21, the heart of the king is like the channel of rivers of water, and God directs it wherever he will. It's God that that it will accomplish his purpose. Isaiah 55. God's word doesn't just return not void, but it doesn't return until it accomplishes what God sets it out to do. And here he sets out to spread the gospel. And here they think they're they're wiping the church out, they're extinguishing it, they're shutting it down. <laughs> Wrong answer. Unintended consequences. You guys blew it. Thank you, Satan. Probably the only thing we should ever thank Satan for. <laughs> for being so stupid. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. There's a lot of thought on that. The apostles, apostles stayed in Jerusalem and seemed to have a, a protection from, from the persecution that was going on, at least for the time being. Therefore, verse 4, therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, we know that it's not the apostles that went forward to preach the word. It was the church, it was the other Christians that were scattered and spread to spread the word, to preach and to share. So the the, the thought is that since these weren't the, the pastors, these weren't the regular preachers, how did they share the gospel? How does gossip spread? Person to person, word of mouth. And as, as they were scattered, as they talked to their neighbor, as they talked to their new neighbors, as they talked to New friends, new people. Oh, why'd you move into town? <laughs> Had to get out of Jerusalem. It was getting a little too hot there. What do you mean? Opportunity to witness. We prayed for our missionaries in the Middle East during the month of Ramadan that God would give the Muslims dreams of the prophet dressed in white because that prophet is Jesus. And that gives Christians an opportunity to talk about Jesus Christ and who he is, that he is the prophet in white. Otherwise, it's a struggle sometimes to have opportunity to share Jesus because you can't overtly do it. You have to wait until they ask you. And then you're free to tell them whatever you want. But you've got to wait for them to ask. And that's an opportunity. So these people, as they're scattered, as they're making new neighbors, as they're finding new homes and new towns, they have an opportunity to share the word of God. And, and it, wasn't, 
It, it wasn't some one, every one of them standing up preaching in front of a congregation. It was the rubbing elbows with the neighbors, getting to know the neighbors, getting to know the, the new neighbors, those next door. The persecution had the unintended consequence of spreading the gospel of Jesus. Unintended from Satan's perspective and from the Sanhedrin's, very, very intended from the perspective of God in what his plan was for these people and how to get his gospel out there. You know, we, we say it a lot, and, and it can become a cliche, but don't ever underestimate it, is that God's got it. He's got it. He's got your back. He's got you. His plan cannot be stopped. Tony, Tony Moreta in, in his book on Acts says, while suffering may be inevitable, God's mission is unstoppable. Flip back a little bit with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 24. And I'll bring these two verses in any sermon I can in the book of Acts and every sermon I can. Because it's a huge key to the book. And God raised him up again, putting an edge, excuse me, putting an end to the agony of death, referring to Christ's resurrection. Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power, sin cannot possibly hold Jesus in the grave. It was not possible. Then if you turn to chapter 4, verse 20. Kind of alluded to it a couple minutes ago, but when, when Peter and John are, are in front of the Sanhedrin, Peter says in 4.20, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. And it was it's with the same degree of certainty. They can't stop speaking of it. Just as sin could not hold Satan in the grave. Peter and John, speaking on behalf of the disciples, but here are on the apostles, right here. Peter says, it's not possible for us to stop speaking of Christ. While suffering may be inevitable, God's mission is unstoppable. And we get to just quickly and briefly in verse 3. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 2. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. Some brave souls. Some brave souls went out to the rock pile and uncovered Stephen's body and took it and gave it a proper burial. He was willing to die for Christ. I think the thought probably went through these guys' minds too that maybe they would be next even in the act of going and getting Stephen's body to bury. There, was, there might be a price for them to pay just for this act. But these men who loved God went and buried Stephen. The, the word there, uh, it talks about the, the loud lament, lamentation over him, the loud lamenting. Um, they, they didn't sneak out at night to do it. They were willing to give what Stephen gave so that they could 
give proper burial to a brother who had given his life for Christ. And, and all through this, this message, I, I hope you're, you're asking yourself, could I do that? Would I be willing to do that for Jesus? Would I be willing to give my life for him? Might never be required of us, might never be asked. But it could be. There's a just just a quip is is it is it right to to mourn those that are that are, are dead? Tina, is it right for us to cry over your mom and miss her? Absolutely. Absolutely it is. Because Jesus wept over Lazarus. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because he knew what was in store for it. He gave us those emotions. That, that, that it's, it's not wrong for us to cry. There's, there, and I, I read this in the book. I'd never heard of this group before, and it didn't say what the name of the group was and where they are, but that, that a, a husband had been suddenly taken in a heart attack and died young. And then the, the elders of the church came to the woman and told her, you have to stop crying. You can't cry. There's no such thing as death. We'll see him in eternity. You don't cry. And, and told how the children had struggled trying to figure that out. Why, why they couldn't cry when they were going to miss their dad. And how odd and unusual and not normal that is. Just from Jesus' example, he wept over Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jesus. And he wept in the garden when he knew what was going to come on him for us. So no, there's nothing wrong with us crying when we lose a loved one. We, we don't have the distraughtness or the despair or the lack of hope that a non-believer has. But we certainly have the right to mourn. Love because of the, the love that we have for somebody and we're going to miss them. John Stott in his book on Acts says that Stephen's speech had been truly prophetic. Jerusalem and the temple now began to fade from view as Christ calls his people out and accompanies them. I mean, that's what Stephen was talking about. Christ is the fulfillment of the law and the gospel. This temple is not where we need to worship. Jerusalem is not the center of our our worship anymore. The center of our worship is our heart to God. And and their their attention is being drawn away from Jerusalem. They're being scattered. They're they're going to the world. They're going to Samaria, as we'll see in the next couple weeks with Philip. they're, They're going to get to Samaria. They're going to get to the uttermost parts of the earth. All is part of God's plan, but it also helps the Jewish people to understand and realize that the temple is not the focus anymore. It's not about the temple. When they went, they scattered, they went about preaching the word. If you go back to John 1, the word was with him, the word was him from the beginning. Uh, and all things were created in him, by him, and for him. 
This whole thing is about the Word of God, and the Word of God is Jesus Christ. And as they went, they preached the Word. They shared the Word. They shared the good news. 1 Corinthians 1.18 This is for those of you that might be here that don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, the Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolish of God, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The things of God are spiritually discerned. And to those that don't know Jesus, it's foolishness, it's stupidity. God's Word says that that that's the way non-believers would look at it. The way they would understand it is, it's just foolishness. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, and I love it, there's no no comma there or, or punctuation, but it's Christ. Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. And those that know Jesus and have a personal relationship with Him understand that. We get it. Unfortunately, the Sanhedrin and the Jewish leadership did not. And even when men were willing to die for their faith, they still didn't get it. They didn't pay attention. They didn't listen. They didn't seek to understand. So, for those of you that do know Jesus here today, this last closing statement is for you. And I will read it a couple times because I want you to take it to heart. I want you to think about it. I want you to place yourself in the sentence. I want you to figure out where you are on the line in your spiritual life. It is possible to be so tactful in our witness for Christ that we never make contact. In other words, how often do we pussyfoot around the gospel and not, 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 not talk like Stephen? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised and heart and ears that are always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just as your fathers did. What's wrong with being that blunt? Because when we're not that blunt, people are going to hell because they don't know Jesus. We need to be blunt, people. 
Because Satan will do everything he can to cover your cover eyes and to blind people to the truth of God's word. So let me read it again. I'm going to rephrase it as a question. Is it possible to be so tactful in our witness for Christ that we never make contact? Unfortunately, I believe it is because we do it every day. I think we're the proof in the pudding. Jesus didn't come to bring peace. He he didn't come to read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people. He says it right in his word. He came to bring strife. He came to offend people. Because in our sinfulness, we are offensive to God. And because of our sinfulness, God's holiness should be offensive to us. Until we come into that right relationship with Him and accept Him as our Savior. So stop being so tactful. You want to sit in heaven without your friends because you didn't get brassy with them? No, I'm not saying use coarse language. We can be blunt without being disgusting or coarse, all right? I know someone that that likes to shock people with his language. He's I believe he's a believer, but he likes to shock people. You know, shock therapy. To shock them with, with his words to get their attention. I don't think we need to do that either. But we need to be blunt. We need to be in people's faces. No, we don't need to physically attack. That's never the answer. I'm not saying that either. Don't don't get don't go off the deep end in the other direction either. But people need to know that they're sinners and going to hell without Jesus. We need to say it like that. Because that's how serious it is. Do you want to sit in heaven without a bunch of your friends because you didn't get brassy and tell them about Jesus? Because they're sitting in hell burning because we didn't get blunt with them. Calm down, Pastor. Get the fire extinguisher. Hose him down. Cool him off. No, don't. It's a serious business. When you die and go to heaven, how many people are going to be in hell because of you? How many people's blood is on your hands because you didn't share the faith with them? Because you didn't tell what God has done for you. Father, thank you for dying for our sins. God, make us uncomfortable. Make us agitated and irritated to the point that we will get off our rear ends and tell our neighbor about Jesus Christ. Because tonight might be too late. Tomorrow might be too late. We love Jill, Father. None of us expected her to go home on the day that she had a heart attack and went home to be with you. We thought she'd be around for longer. 
And Father, we thank you that Jill knew you and had a personal relationship with you. And we know that Jill is with you in eternity right now, God. And we look forward to that day when we are too and we will see her again. But God, just make us uncomfortable until we tell those around us about you, about what you did for them. We shouldn't keep it to ourselves. You disperse the church to tell. Thank you for the apostles. Thank you for these deacons and, and Stephen. In the next couple of weeks as we look at Philip, thank you for all oh, their testimony and their desire to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, give us that desire. Burn in our hearts that we can't help we, it would not be possible for us to not share you. That's how much we need to love you, Father. Thank you for your word. And we ask that you bless our time of fellowship now. That we would um, just just have sweet fellowship, Father. And, and thank you for the memories of, of Jill Hutchinson and, and uh, just the, the joy that she brought to us. And again, the joy and the, the, the hope that we have that we know we'll see her again. And as David Jeremiah says, we know it's not a, I hope, hope, so hope, but it's a no, so hope that we know that we have that hope that we know that we will see her when we see you. Thank you for this day, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.